Support for Starting Small comes from Human Scale, the leading designer and manufacturer of high-performance ergonomic products that help create a healthier work life. All of the products from chairs to standing desk and more are comfortable, easy to use, and sustainable, and great for either the office or the work from home environment. With an increase in shifting workplaces, comfort can be especially hard to find. As I run the podcast, I'm in front of my desk for hours a day, from scheduling, researching, interviewing, and more. Human Scale allows me to remain productive without the consequence of body stress to follow. Make sure to check out Human Scale at humanscale.com and use code STARTINGSMALL at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. That's code STARTINGSMALL at humanscale.com and enjoy the episode. Hello and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Ray Lee, founder of Scene, custom clothing created on demand. Ray and his co-founder Mark eliminated the need for a measuring tape and created a technology called SmartFit, allowing you to take a quiz based off of features such as your preference and traits. Thanks to Scene, you can now order custom clothing that is affordable and time efficient. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Ray Lee of Scene. Ray, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Cameron. Excited to be here. Of course. So I'd like to start out with your upbringing. So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I was born in China and I moved to the U.S. when I was three. My parents actually grew up during the Cultural Revolution in China and they had an opportunity to come to the U.S. as medical students. And so my mom actually moved when I was one, came to the U.S. with 70 bucks in her pocket. My dad moved when I was two and then when I was three, I moved here with my with my grandparents. Wow. And, you know, growing up as an immigrant in the US, one, I'm super grateful to my parents for the opportunity to come here and have a better life. At the same time, it can be challenging. A lot of times you can feel like an outsider and there's certainly some Asian American identity crises growing up. We also moved around a ton. Mm-hmm. We started in, where my parents went to med school in Illinois, then we moved to Maryland where they did their PhD and did research. And then we moved to upstate New York, then we moved to Long Island. So it's just a lot of moving. And I, I find that for kids, when you have to move around so much, it either makes you really good at being social or you become more introverted. I think thankfully I reacted in the way where it helped me to really learn how to make friends very quickly and it's, it's proven to be useful later in life, but I think at the time I really hated it. Yeah. Would you say that you had an entrepreneurial mindset growing up as a kid, uh, say Sony products or Modi Longs, anything like that? It's a great question. I've heard some of your other podcasts where people have been doing that. I was not yeah. entrepreneurial at all. Not okay. at all. I was, I think I was always groomed and trained to climb the corporate ladder. My parents pursued higher education and that was able to give them a stable career in medicine. And that was sort of their way out of poverty. And for me, the idea was that that's probably a similar trajectory of like, let's build on top of that. Let's get, let's go to a grade school. Let's try to get a stable professional job, you know, become a partner in consulting or something like that. So it was actually not, there was not an entrepreneurial bone in me. However, when I was in high school, my parents actually had this amazing opportunity to buy this struggling medical practice. They took a loan from a friend. Everyone told them it was a bad idea, and they turned that practice around, 
and they expanded it. They tripled the business and it was an incredible thing for me to see. Yeah. And then they started encouraging me to think about entrepreneurship. I wasn't really into it. My wife though has always been entrepreneurial. After we got married, she had wanted to start their own, her own business. And then during our honeymoon, we were dreaming about the future. And that was the first time we thought, and for me, it was the first time where I thought, wow, what if I didn't work for the man? What if I could yeah. be truly free and start something of my own? Wow. That's amazing. I saw you went on to study at Cornell in 2005 uh, with your parents going into med school. I'm curious, were they encouraging you to take that similar path? Or were they open to you studying something else? Oh, yeah. They were very intense about me becoming a doctor. They really wanted yeah. me to be a doctor. And I think the second best choice was being a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And then I decided I didn't want to do law. <laughs> and I told them I, I would do consulting. They were like, what is that? How do we explain <laughs> that to our friends? And I was like, trust me, it's still, you know, respectable. And then... <laughs> Um, you know, and then first I was doing management consulting and then after management consulting, I did brand consulting. And when I said I was going to switch, they were like, wait, management consulting. We started to understand what in the world is brand consulting. <laughs> and so I kept moving further and further away from, uh, something that was familiar. Mm -hmm. So you, you say you, uh, you went on this trip with your wife and I'm curious, Talking on the foundings of scene and moving a little bit prior to your own entrepreneurial endeavor, where did you meet your wife then? And what was that connection between her entrepreneurship uh, leading into inspiring yourself? Yeah, we, so after college, I graduated in 2009. Mm -hmm. My wife and I actually uh, both moved to New York City the same year. We were part of the same church in New York and we actually met at the beach. And we had okay. this large group, 30 people. Then we had this photo of day one where we met. She's on one side of the beach, I'm on the other side. And, you know, we, it was pretty quick. We dated for nine months, um, engaged for nine months, got married. And, you know, when she was younger, she always had a very strong business mind. At one point, actually, she wanted to open her own fashion boutique back in her hometown. Mm -hmm. The bank didn't give her a loan, thank God. Otherwise, she would have moved back before I met her. And then we wow. would have never gotten married. So things all worked out. Then during our wedding process, she noticed how the furniture rentals all were the same aesthetic. And she thought there's this opportunity to introduce a very different aesthetic and build a business. And at the time, the entrepreneurial leanings were, I was thinking, I'll quit my job and I'll do marketing for you. Mm -hmm. And that was the initial thought where she would be the boss and I would just help her out. And that's yeah. how I, we were going to get into it. Um, but, but yeah, it, it was, it, it was totally influenced by her and her courage to do something like that. That made me think actually, this is a possibility for us. Yeah. So talking about this endeavor on her side, did you guys end up following along with that plan? And did you guys end up starting uh, this together? Yeah. So we had a very non-traditional approach. She did her thing. I did my thing. We didn't raise all this venture money. We actually didn't even seriously start it in the beginning. We were just working nights and weekends on it. It was a bit of a project. Mm -hmm. She was, uh, you know, uh, we, we would do events at night for her. She, has, she, she started a furniture and decor rentals business. Mm -hmm. And so I, I was working full time. She was working full time. 
we'd get off work. Sometimes she would have furniture deliveries and then I would help her deliver the furniture for events. And then we'd pick it up at midnight or 1am after the event was done. And then I would be so sleepy the next day for work. And, you know, for work, I was, uh, how scenes started too was, was really on a work trip. I, I was traveling internationally for one of our clients. They're a huge technology company. We led their global rebrand. I was doing workshops in all these different countries to introduce the employees to the brand. And during that time, I spent a weekend in Shanghai. I went to the fabric market, sort of a dingy environment. A buddy really wanted to go and he said, let's get some custom suits made. So I thought, great idea, let's do it. I was shocked by how fast the process was because within the US, you know, you're expecting four to six weeks typically yeah. for a custom suit. I, I realized that the actual process was, could be quicker. But I also realized that the process was super complicated. My friend was totally overwhelmed by the options that he had to design his own thing. And he just said, Ray, help me. And my work up to this point, as I've been helping Fortune 500 companies um, simplify very complex processes and make it easy for consumers. A lot of times it's about uncovering insights based on unmet needs and designing something new that feels really intuitive. And custom really is this one huge, complex, expensive process that actually there's this opportunity for technology to make it really simple. So it, it, it was it was right up my wheelhouse. It was personally meaningful. And I was like, let's let's do this. It was just intellectually fun to try to yeah. do it. So this is the first adaptation of Scene, as you mentioned. And this is the first company you started suitable. And this is in person, in person, a retail location, correct? Yeah, so it's so funny. Yeah, the first comp, the, what eventually became seen, it was suitable. And that was something we did for a couple of years. And it was all using a tape measure to measure people. Wow. And we had a showroom in New York. It was something where, uh, you know, I, I took the plunge, quit my job, opened the showroom. It was honestly like not the best experience. It's this tiny little space in this corporate office building. This is a random little space, um, but you know, it's kind of where we got started and I would measure people there in person and it, it was honestly pretty hard because I was not good at digital marketing at the time. And so very rarely people would come in anytime I spent money on ads. I would, it would just be this huge hole. I would not get a single conversion. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, we're trying all these other ways to get people to come. Yeah. And, uh, but, but I think there was a lot of learnings in those early days. Um, but yeah, that, that was hard. We did it for, I think, um, we opened it for probably about a year, a year and a half. And then we closed it. I moved to LA. My wife and I were trying to figure out also just personally where we wanted to be long-term. We also knew that whatever city we chose, we wanted to be in for a long time. And we also want our, our employees to be able to have families and stay with us for a long time. And New York is pretty hard for that. So we moved to LA. Yeah. I thought the solution to the New York showroom problem was to open a proper retail store. So that's, that's kind of when we really did get after it more in a bigger way was the opening the retail store. Mm -hmm. So that was like kind of putting on our big book hands. Let's, let's do this. Let's open yeah. a store. Traffic was the problem for the showroom. Let's get a retail store where there will be traffic. So we, we had no idea where we we're choosing locations. We ended up choosing the street that's super hyped, but has very low foot traffic. Mm. Uh, it was a very expensive rent, you know, did that, um, had a couple of really good months. And then the rest of the time we were just trying to chase those earlier months. 
and it was it was a a very stressful time mm. because we got to a point where we were two months away from running out of cash, wow. and my, my uh, I just had my son for the first time, or my wife did, and I, I just felt like I was failing her, I was failing him, and then we had about I think it was around forty to fifty thousand dollars worth of fraud. Mm. Um, we had these home trying boxes and, and some of people were able to maneuver around our credit card, um, you know, security system. And they mm. like, there's a ton of fraud, fraudulent orders that we made product for. We lost all of it. So I was so beaten down. I got to a point where I was thinking, like, am I crazy? Because up to this point, I had so much conviction that mm. there was this opportunity to make custom mainstream and that also that Mark and I, my cousin joined as a co-founder when we opened the store, um, mm -hmm. that we had what it took to do it. And, and there's this, this huge crisis of maybe I've been kidding myself this whole time. And I think as an encouragement to other people who are having that moment, one, all that struggle and all that pain actually taught us a lot of things around the custom industry. All of that funneled into the creation of the SmartFit technology that we built is because we realized through measuring people countless weekends when we could have been out with friends countless late nights um, that we actually learned so much about the art and science of fit yeah that we were able to systematize that into an algorithm that now has uh, like a data science technology built underneath it um, but yeah initially it just felt like what are we doing this all for and are we just gonna yeah run out of money as the company will go bankrupt are we also we have personally guaranteed the space too so like what is this are we gonna and we have the lease for a couple more years thankfully we were able to sell that space um to an amazing brand that has done a much better job in the space and then we realized that you and this is the second learning was you have to be honest intellectually honest with yourself we had all these products that were okay and we had some people who liked them uh, but it was it was very hard to sell yeah and so we had to make this decision to kill something good so that we can make something great so we got rid of all of our products and we were like we can we should only make things if we think they're truly unique have an incredible value proposition so we got rid of everything we closed the store we relaunched on kickstarter in may 2019 this is what this is the beginning of seeing and what yeah. it is now and we did over 100,000 in 14 days and we had never seen velocity of sales like that up to that point. Wow. So and, yeah, change the yeah. business. What do you think switched demand? You're at this retail location with OK products. Uh, you completely relaunch. Was it a new marketing strategy? What do you think was that new click? There is this saying that you, you know, I learned it from um, a good friend, Terry Lynn. He used to be, you know, head of product at Casper. He is now um, co-founder, head of product at an incredible brand called Outer. Hmm. And Terry actually broke this down. He he actually did a great job of explaining why our products work. He said, in, in furniture design, there are three elements that you can, um, yeah, you can kind of like play around with three factors when you, when you're designing furniture, there is, there's, there's, um, there's color, there's form. And then there's one more thing. Um, if you adjust one factor, it's good. If you adjust two factors, it's great. If you adjust three factors, it's way too far out. Mm. So the key is building something that's 
much better, but still feels really familiar. It's really how you create like an incredible product. And so for custom, you know, what we did is we took the custom suit, but we remixed it with an athleisure fabric. It was super simple, easy to explain. Up to that point, we didn't have any hero products. Nothing on a product level was truly unique. Finally, we had this thing where it was so easy to explain. It was like custom suit, athleisure comfort. Yeah. You could say that right away. And we started realizing that's the kind of product we have to explain. Like we have to create things that are super tight. Value options really clear. The products have to be good. It's not just about fit. Mm. So you opened up this new launch. I'm curious. Then did you stay at this or after closing down that first location? Did you guys launch 100% e-commerce or did you reopen a new location? What did that look like? Yeah, that's a great question. So there was actually this interim period where we had this free membership that we were. Mm-hmm. and uh, we had the Amex Platinum card, gave us a free year's worth of membership. And so we actually listed WeWork locations as fitting locations. And if a customer <laughs> booked an appointment, they would show up at the WeWork and they, they would say, uh, am I in the right place? And we're like, <laughs> yes, you are, come on in. And then we would measure them in the middle of everyone in the common area because our membership only entitled us to the common area. And for some people, they're like, oh, this is like pretty awkward. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And the other people would say, is this your whole office? Is this all, all seen? And we're like, no, this is like a co-working space. <laughs> so, you know, that was just hustling. And for us, we were, we were thrilled because we remembered how expensive the rent was in the retail yeah. store. And this was a way to get orders and not pay for rent. So we loved it. That's amazing. And then, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. So later, you know, of course, business picked up enough where we couldn't be doing that. So we got a proper office in a co-working space. We continue to do some fittings, but you know, at that point, 98% of orders were coming in through SmartFit. And SmartFit mm-hmm. orders were instant in the fitting. And whereas in-person measurements, in-person sessions could take, you know, 30 minutes to an hour. Yeah. And it just made a ton of sense to transition to hundred um, percent e-com only through SmartFit. So yeah, today, hundred percent of our orders are coming in through SmartFit. Wow, that, that's amazing. I'm curious then, uh, this is your co-founder, uh, also your cousin who, he came up with the concept of SmartFit, correct? We kind of came up with it together, but he okay. built the underlying technology. Got it. So as a, or for a listener, what does a POV look like for a customer logging in uh, SmartFit in contrast to in-person measuring? How does that kind of compare? Yeah, so you, it's a simple, depending on if you're taking the men's or the women's version, it's 10 to 16 questions you're answering. Things like your height, your typical standard sizes, typical fit issues that you have, and how you prefer for things to fit. Mm-hmm. And not only are we generating your body measurements, we're actually generating a library of fit blueprints for anything we currently offer in our collection, as well as anything we might launch in the future. So you take this one-time quiz, and you can have access to anything in our collection. So we use data mm-hmm. science to generate the size. So you don't need a measuring tape. It's super simple. You already know all the answers. Click, 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 60 seconds, you have a custom fit. Wow. The crazy thing is SmartFit is actually more accurate than being in-person. You typically would think, oh, in-person measuring, that's way more accurate. The reality is it's actually not. And it's it's also a very difficult business to scale. If you want to hire all in-person tailors, uh, like very advanced, very skilled tailors, yes, that's going to be great. But that's, that's going to make the product super expensive for the consumer. Yeah. 
and and companies like Indochino, you know, they're trying to straddle this middle ground where they're hiring people who don't have a ton of background in in fitting. You know, of course, they have some people that do, but it, it's just a very difficult skill set to hire for. Mm-hmm. And that's why actually a lot of times when you're buying custom, it just doesn't really fit right. And it can fit yeah. worse than off the rack. For sure. With so much success at launch on your Kickstarter campaign, I'm curious then, what were your main forms of marketing? Uh, with not too much successful marketing prior with this first retail location, what did that look like that changed for scene? So, you know, I mentioned before that digital ads had never worked for us pre-Kickstarter. Yeah. We felt fairly confident that the product and the creative at this point was right. And that smart fit was also a fitting mechanism that people were into. So it was a little scary, but we, we started advertising right after the Kickstarter and it just started working. And then sales just went bonkers and we just started growing really quickly. And we, we have now continued the trend. We keep on selling all this stuff pretty regularly, but wow. it's a lot through Facebook and Instagram ads. You know, that's a huge <laughs> channel for us. And then we've been fortunate to get some press as well. Amazing. With uh, purchasing trends from launch along with today, what would you say is the main demographic for custom wear, uh, specifically for scene? Yeah, and, and that's a great question because over 90% of our customers have never bought custom before. This is their first time experiencing it, and they don't have interest in the traditional custom offering. They're too busy. Uh, you know, it, it sounds like a lot of work or it's too expensive. Mm-hmm. For us, the I think your question is who's the primary customer? Is that right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, so, you know, it tends to be late 20s to mid 40s, people who are investing in themselves. You know, they're tired of just buying cheap stuff. They want to own something that is made well, is stylish, is going to last. And part of that is the fit. And so this is a way for them to get the look that they've always wanted and to get that consistently. And that also if their body changes, they know that this thing is going to continue to fit. They also know that this will never get discontinued. A lot of these people tend to be very active, on the go, very busy, successful in their careers, care about personal fitness. And so you kind of see this idea of like a very thoughtful, considered life that's also very active. And we provide this versatile set of items that can go with all these different uh, outfits and also have a performance quality to the fabric so that you can go from a meeting to the plane to drinks and you don't have to change outfits. Amazing. Looking at scene today then, uh, with a couple more competitors in this area, what would you say is uh, mainly separates scene from your competitors? So there, there are two types of competitors. The first mm-hmm. kind is the business model of custom and then there's the replacements. Mm-hmm. So. People who buy our stuff, um, aren't, we're not really competing against other custom players, really. We're really competing against, um, you know, on these on the FlexTech suit side, we're competing against, um, there, there's a couple other performance suit brands. Mm-hmm. We're competing against like the Lululemons of the world. On the mm-hmm. denim side, we're competing against Seven for All, and kind of rag and bone and whatnot. But I'll just address the custom models real quick. Traditional custom, the Indochinos of the world, which are fitting people in person at stores, that's a great business model. We're not really competing against them because they are really doing special occasion suits for men. And we're doing everyday custom clothing for women and men. Mm -hmm. 
And mm-hmm. so our, our product assortment doesn't really compete against each other. Um, but, but, but the difference is we're offering a service that's really simple and easy and quick. They're offering something that is very more fancy, is going to take a long time, is supposed to be this big experience. So yeah. our goals are a little bit different. There's also companies that do body scanning, but a lot of people have found that body scanning is difficult to scale. A lot of people don't want to be scanned. It's a lot of work. There's privacy issues around where's that information going. Mm-hmm. So we're generally not too worried about the custom um, competitors. You know, our thing is the thing that we're always thinking about is how do we convince people to try custom who've never done it before? Yeah. And, and so, you know, what we have to do is offer a better experience at an off the rack price. Mm. And we have to convince people that it actually works because usually, you know, for the quality and what you're getting, for example, our denim is from the same mill that Prada uses. This is like an incredible premium fabric. We use the same mill that pioneered a lot of the original dyeing methods and we sell it for 149. Comparable off the rack jeans go for 200 to $300. So mm. you're getting custom, it comes with unlimited remakes and alterations. So it's like a really, really great value. Mm-hmm. But so, so what we have to do is convince people that, hey, this actually works. Um, it's worth your time and it will come out better. That's our, that's our challenge. Got it. Looking at a scene with heavy e-commerce presence, do you see a, a retail opportunity in like the near future for a scene along with just the custom industry in specific? Yeah, I, I think absolutely there's an opportunity. It's something where we do think there's there's so much room to grow with SmartFit, but certainly in real life, IRL experiences are incredibly powerful. We would think about um, retail concepts more as brand experiences to introduce people to the brand. And there's, there's really honestly a lot of variety of ways we could do it. We probably wouldn't jump right into a retail store. We'd look at other concepts, potentially collaborative concepts. Mm-hmm. To, to test it. Got it. Well, Ray, I like to conclude each episode with this. If you could share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, what would that be? Maybe something you've learned or regret? Just anything. Yeah, I, I think it's really important to understand what is driving you. A lot of times what is driving you can make you really successful, but it can also be something that causes you to make mistakes. Mm. I think what one thing I've learned is that it's really important. You know, I, I think I have this childhood thing where I really want external validation. And I've been very cognizant of that. And I really have to manage that. And that means that um, a lot of times what's really good for the business I, um, is to keep plugging away, keep marching forward and realizing that the dream is really the journey and growing. It's not about some end destination. That's been really important for me to learn. Mm-hmm. And that you have to understand that you have to focus on building a product. You have to realize that raising money is an obligation. It's not something to necessarily celebrate. It's just the beginning of your obligation now to investors. Mm-hmm. Hiring employees is an obligation to the employees and their families that you now have a responsibility to shepherd them. So don't celebrate those things that other people will think you're great for. Celebrate working hard and building experiences that your customers love. 
And that's when you're going to see great things happen. Such a good point. Well, Ray, thank you so much for joining me. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out Scene at scenestudio.com. Thank you so much, Cameron. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small Pod on social platforms to keep up to date on future guests.